Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Uh, family, if you guys got your Bibles, head over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be today. And uh, hey, if you're new, I just want to welcome you and just say my name is uh, Josh. I'm one of the senior pastors here at our church. And uh, if you are brand new, let me just say you picked a doozy. Welcome to Lake Point. And uh, thanks so much for checking us out on, uh, on your first week. Um, let me explain why today is, uh, like Pastor Steve said a second ago, we're kind of labeling this message PG-11. Um, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Uncommon. Um, and, and here's where, where this comes from. It's kind of this concept that in order to make a difference in the world, we have to be different from the world. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. When you read the Bible, what you see is that the Bible constantly talks about how unique and different Christians, followers of Jesus are um, from the rest of the world. The Bible calls us things like strangers, aliens, distinct, foreign, different, set apart. Um, and what some people try to do, to be really honest, especially in my generation and down, is, uh, is they try to like come up with and manufacture a version of Christianity that's not weird to the world. Uh, can I just say something to you? They're trying to get this out here, guys. Christians have always been weird. Um, in fact, that is the entire nature of what it means to follow Jesus, to be called out from the world. And so each week of this series what we're doing is uh, we're looking at one aspect of Christianity and following Christ that makes us uncommon and different from the world. Now, what we're doing today is we're looking at uncommon purity. And what I would say is there's, there's probably no area in our culture right now that makes Christians more distinct from the world than how Christians approach issues of marriage, gender, and sexuality, okay? So one last warning in case you missed last week's message, social media, LP News, in your bulletin, and Pastor Steve, uh, unless you wanna have the talk with your kids in the minivan on the way home, you, you might wanna find your way to the bathroom right now, okay? So that's your last warning. Now, let me just kind of go ahead and dive in like this. This issue has even changed in, uh, in my lifetime. You know, I'm 36 years old, and uh, when I was growing up, my parents were working really hard to keep me from seeing the underwear section of the JCPenney catalog. <laughs> you know, that was like the goal. Once a year, the uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition would hit, you know, all the mailboxes. My parents were working hard to keep us from seeing that. Now, all you have to do is log on to Instagram, and you will see things that make the Swimsuit Edition look like the focus on the family staff album. You know, it's like we, we've, there's, there's been a, quite a massive shift and that shift has even led to obvious, uh, you know, obviously the per pervasiveness of pornography usage in our culture. Uh, this has even trickled down into like, again, especially how my generation and down um, approaches the formulation of uh, romantic relationships. 
Um, some of you uh, will be more familiar with this than others of you. Um, right now, I read an article about a, a very popular dating app called Tinder. Tinder, if you're unfamiliar with Tinder, super popular dating app. By the way, I've uh, praised Jesus. I've never been on a dating app. You know, I'm really thankful for that. But Tinder is a thing, and uh, Tinder is a, it's a, primarily a hookup app um, that uh, connects you with other people looking for largely physical, casual encounters. You know how it works is, hey, if you're not interested, swipe right. If you are interested, swipe, or I, I don't know, is it, is it swipe right or swipe left if you are interested? Okay, get smart, you're smart. Nobody answered the question. All right, that was really smart. Let me just say, if you have that app on your phone, here's my advice to you. Just look straight forward and pretend you have no idea what I'm talking about, you know? That, John, I do want to say it. If you have that app, uh, definitely make sure you got your phone on silent because if you get a Tinder notification during this sermon, you're going straight to hell. That's what's going to happen. You know, that's, that's a joke, by the way. Totally a joke. But uh, Tinder, just uh, this uh, in the last couple of years, registered its trillionth with a T, <laughs> trillionth swipe, and it has somewhere around 50 million active users. And then that has even kind of trickled down into sort of pop mainstream Christianity. Um, again, some of you will be more familiar with this than others. On the most recent season of The Bachelorette, uh, there was uh, the main contestant. There was applause over here. That's weird. Uh, there was uh, the main contestant on, on the show um, who was a, an out, is an outspoken Christian follower of Christ. Um, kind of the end of the show, after she you know, slept with uh, somebody uh, on the show, she was asked about it, and she was just very forthright and blunt. She said, yes, I did have sex and Jesus still loves me, it's not that big a deal. And so this is one of these issues that really, it's changed in my lifetime, it's a huge issue, and it is one thing that makes Christians uncommon from the world. So what we wanna do is uh, we're gonna look at a passage that uh, really talks about and clarifies for us what this looks like and gives us a vision of God's good vision for human sexuality. So if you got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter six, all right? Now, let me just say this quick preface. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to a church in a city called Corinth. Now, that is significant for a couple reasons. Corinth was to ancient Rome what like Las Vegas was to America or Amsterdam is to Europe. Uh, Corinth was widely known as sort of the sex capital of ancient Rome um, because in the middle of, first of all, it was a major travel thoroughfare. Um, it sits in the middle of a 13-mile-wide isthmus. I practice saying that word all week, isthmus. And, uh, and so what would happen is sailors would come and they would port on one side of Corinth. They would literally pick up their ships and walk the ship 13 miles across the Isthmus, which meant that they would stay in Corinth while on travel. Now, as you can imagine, the same thing happened when men were away from their families for months traveling back then that sometimes happens when men travel alone now. And so it was a city just full of very rampant prostitution. But more than that, in the middle of the city on an enormous hill, there was a temple to the ancient pagan goddess Aphrodite, the god goddess of intimacy and sexuality. In the uh, temple of Aphrodite, there was somewhere around a thousand pagan cult prostitutes. And here's how this worked. If you wanted to worship, the goddess Aphrodite, then you would engage in intimacy with a cult prostitute in the temple of Aphrodite in the middle of Corinth. So it gained a reputation. Now this is, you know, just funny little tidbit. You know, in our culture, we have words for that. Like if somebody gets around, we'll say, oh man, that person's loose, or she gets around, your grandma might've called her a hussy, you know, whatever they, they say. Uh, in ancient Rome, they actually had a term for somebody like that. Here's what they would say in ancient Rome. They'd say, oh, she's a Corinthian girl. 
That's how widespread sort of this reputation had gotten. Now, what you gotta remember is that there was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit that exploded in Corinth and the gospel just started ripping through the city and saving and redeeming people right and left. And so in this church that this letter was written to, there were people who had been redeemed exclusively out of backgrounds of rampant sexual brokenness and sin. And so here's what they did. They came into Christianity with lots of confusion and questions about, so what does it look like to follow Jesus in the area of my sexuality? Now, let me explain something before I read this passage. Last thing. You're gonna notice three times in this passage there are quotes. In fact, verse 12 starts with a quote, something in quotes in your Bible. Here's what this is. The people at Corinth had written a letter to Paul asking specific questions about how they should relate to their sexuality. What you see in the quotes is what the Corinthians wrote to Paul, and then the, the sentences after the quotes are Paul's response to their statements and questions. So let's dive right in, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I have the right to do anything. That's what the Corinthians wrote to Paul, Paul's response. But not everything is beneficial. Again, the Corinthians. I have the right to do anything, Paul's response. Yeah, but you don't wanna be mastered by anything. You say, and again, quote from the Corinthians, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I'll explain that in a second. Yeah, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. You're gonna note that phrase in a second. I'll, I'll, I'll explain that. Uh, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee, by the way, that is always the Bible's command uh, when it comes to sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, some of your Bibles, the translations say sins against themselves. I think that's a better translation, and I'll explain why in a second. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price Therefore, honor God with your bodies, okay? Now, let's dive right in. Let me start here uh, and just say this. I, I need to define something from this passage. So the big question is, so what is God's design? What's the standard for what some people call purity or sexual faithfulness to the Lord? Before I define this, can I just say something to you here if you're not a Christian? In 1 Corinthians chapter five, Paul says about the issue of sex and sexual immorality in non-Christian people. In 1 Corinthians five, Paul says, what have we to do with judging outsiders? He says, that's not our job. So what I wanna say to you is if you're not a Christian, listen, you have my permission to punt on all these issues. You don't need to be asking the question right now, what is sexual immorality? You need to be wrestling the, with the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he says matters and everything he says is for your good. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then nothing Jesus says matters and nothing he says might necessarily be for your good. So you have my permission to punt on these issues and just ask the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Okay, now that being said, 
we gotta ask the question, what is God's standard? You may have noticed that twice in this passage it uses the phrase that gets translated sexual immorality. That word comes from a Greek word, it's the Greek word porneia, from which we get our English word, the word pornography. And what it is, it's a junk drawer term that Jesus used to refer, watch this, let me define it, to refer to any sexual expression outside of God's creational design, outside of the Genesis 2 ideal. So any sexual expression outside of one man with one woman in marriage for a lifetime. Okay. Now, uh, I come from a background where I, uh, I pastored a church of, uh, that was like kind of my generation down. Here's what I know, that increasingly, especially my generation down, there's confusion on, hey, Josh, so what does that actually mean? I don't understand, you know, standards here. So let me be just super crazy awkward and list a bunch of things that that means. This will be a lot of fun, okay? So this is, this is why we rated this PG-11, uh, here you go. So here's what that forbids. It forbids pornography usage. It forbids sexual intimacy and cohabitation before marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual relations, polygamy and polyamory, lustful masturbation, sexualizing yourself intentionally with sexually provocative dress or social media pictures, anything like that, to sexualize yourself for people besides your spouse. It includes marital adultery. Uh, if you're in a relationship, like I heard this a lot growing up in, uh, in high school, where people would be dating, they say, oh man, we did everything except. You know what, well, it includes all the everything excepts. Jesus said that it even includes lust of the eyes and emotional fantasizing, okay? Now, if you're brand new here, welcome to Lake Point. Aren't you, you know, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> Applause, you guys are fun, this is gonna be fun. Now, can I just say this? Some of you right now, honestly, when I say that, you're really disappointed. And here's why you're disappointed. You right now in your seat may be saying, man, Josh, gosh, you know, a couple weeks ago you talked about, you know, compassion for the immigrant. You know, a couple weeks ago, you know, last time you were up, you talked about, you know, racial reconciliation. And you might now be saying, man, Josh, I thought that you were one of those young progressive pastors. But can I, can I just say something to you? I am. I'm helping you progress into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we're calling to do, okay? So listen. Some of you, you may hear that and you may go, man, Josh, that, what you just said, you may go, that's impossible. Nobody could do that. And that's kind of the point. I'll get there in a second. And that's insane. And here's why you'd say that's insane. You'd say, man, Josh, it's not expressing our sexual desires that kills you. Josh, it's repressing sexual desires. That's what kills a person. Well, let me explain to you why you think that. Here's why you think that. You think that because you don't know it, but you are in the middle of an, a, a failure of a cultural experiment, and you're the test tube. Uh, let me explain this, so uh, let me back up. This is, it was not on the screen, but if you got your Bibles, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse one. And you're gonna notice another quote from the Corinthians to Paul, where they say, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, you'll see a quote, and this is what some of the Corinthians said. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, okay? Now, here's what that is. That was some of the Corinthians saying this to Paul. Now here, there's two throughout history. There have been two equal and opposite views when it comes to human sexuality. Here's view number one, and it's, it comes straight out of 1 Corinthians. View number one is sex is a necessary evil to be avoided. Now here's where this comes from, again, Many of these Corinthian Christians had been, st been steeped in the shame of their sexual brokenness and past that they'd been saved out of. 
And what happens, this happens to a lot of people, is that those feelings of shame from their sinful past with their sexuality, they brought that shame into their Christian marriages and that shame had wrongly fused itself to all expressions of sexuality. And so now, here's what they kind of felt. Even though they were married in God-blessed, you know, sexually active marriages, what they kind of felt like was, ah, this still, still just feels a little wrong. Now, this view, sex is a necessary evil to be avoided, has pervaded sort of religious history. I'll give you an example of this. There was an early church father named Jerome who wrote this. He wrote, if a husband is inflamed with too much lust for his wife, he himself is an adulterer. That is nowhere in the Bible. He just pulled it out of thin air. Same thing. Shame from sexual brokenness latched itself on to all sexuality. And here's what this kind of feels like, okay? It's kind of this mentality that sex, it's kind of a dirty thing that should never be discussed, definitely never ever celebrated. It's something that might be for procreation, definitely not for recreation. And sort of any sexual expression, it's kind of like a necessary evil, and let's just like do as little of it as possible, okay? Now, this, uh, to give an example of this, I grew up, uh, you know, grew up in Southern Baptist churches, that's kind of my background, and this is like churches uh, that I came from that forbid premarital sex because it might lead to dancing, you know what I'm saying right there, this one. <laughs> I think there's anything that might be even vaguely, you know, sexual, we just gotta stay away from those things. Now here's what this view has done, is it's produced a generation that views the God of Christianity as like a great spoil sport, instead of the wonderful creator of sex as a beautiful gift for his people. Okay, now uh, this is all throughout the Bible, let me have a little fun with this. So I just want you to think about this, God created sex. You gotta think about that. In the garden, so think about this, God creates everything. He says, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, creates everything. He gets done creating, and then it's almost like he looks around at his angels and he goes, guys, I got one more really good idea. And the angels say, is it another rainbow? And he says, nope, it's way better than a rainbow, right? And then God gives his first command, think about this, the first command that God ever gives in the Bible is to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you're not picking up what I'm putting down, be fruitful and multiply, that's Hebrew for bow, chicka, wow, wow. That's what that means, okay? <laughs> and then, just fast forward a few books of the Bible to the book of Song of Solomon. There is an entire book of the Bible that is a celebration of marital sexuality. In fact, the book of the Song of Solomon, it is so graphic that ancient Jewish people uh, forbid boys to read it until the age of 13. It's full of euphemisms, very obvious euphemisms about a woman's body, just a man celebrating and reveling in this beautiful gift that God has given. I'm just gonna read one verse from Song of Solomon. Uh, verses like this. I will climb the palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. Okay, uh, now if you're not understanding what that means, if, uh, if Michael Scott were here, he'd say, that's what she said. Okay, that's what we're going on, all right? Now, what this does is if we, if we view this, uh, kind of take this view, the sex is a necessary evil to be avoided, it distorts the image of God as a good God who gives good gifts to his children and distorts that healthy Christian attitude towards uh, marital sexuality. Now, on the other hand, view number two goes like this, and you'll note this. Look in verse 13. In verse 13, the, some of the Corinthians had written and said this. They said, well... Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now here, here's what they were doing. View number two is this. Sex is just another physical appetite to be filled. It's kind of like being hungry or thirsty or tired. That's all it is, Josh. It's kind of like, man, 
their, their mentality was when I get hungry, I eat, when I get thirsty, I drink, you know, when I get horny, I, we, I, I told you this is a PG-11 sermon, there it is. I satisfy that desire. Now, this is the mentality, especially in my generation and down. And again, I, I said that you were in the middle of a failed cultural experiment. Back in the 1970s, there was two movements that were burgeoning at the same time. There was the Jesus movement that was seeing many people swept up into Christ in a powerful way. At the same time, there was a movement being birthed called the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution, really in the last 40 years or so, what we've seen is that the sexual revolution ultimately won our culture. I'm gonna read one quote from a, a book written back then called Adam and Eve After the Pill, written by a woman named Mary Eberstadt, and she defines the sexual revolution like this. She said this, it is the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. And that's really the mentality that has really won in my generation and down. And here's the formula. The formula that you are being sold is this. Desire plus uh, consent equals freedom. As long as there's desire and consent, then that will equal freedom. Now, that formula has been shown in our generation to be an utter devastating failure. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me begin by reading from the New York Times. Now, I just wanna point this out. I'm, guys, I'm reading from the New York Times. This is not like Christianity Today. This is not a focus on the family broadcast. The New York Times, okay? And I quote, pornography is a sickness. It's when our healthy sexuality is distorted and it becomes sick. The largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17 and porn producers increasingly target adolescents. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-20s and up. In fact, the number one searched for porn term in the world is the word teen. If you didn't know this, the pornography industry in America is massive beyond all recognition. In fact, this year it, it'll be somewhere around probably about a $12 billion industry. To put that in perspective, the porn industry will earn more this year than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. 80% of men in America right now report uh, regular use of, usage of pornography, and the fastest growing population segment of consumption of porn in the world is young women. In 2015, this is again from this article. In 2015, when this article was written, one pornography site reported 4.3 billion hours of pornography being viewed on that site that year. To put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of 500,000 years of pornography being viewed on a single site. Right now, the fastest, largest selling book among women in the history of the world is not a cookbook, it is Fifty Shades of Grey. Now listen, that is doing something to us. Do you remember uh, in this passage where it says, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body? What the Bible's teaching us is that, listen, it's not just another physical appetite to be filled. Whenever we engage sexually, the Bible teaches that it's almost like a mingling of souls is taking place and that spiritual formation in us is happening whenever we express ourselves sexually. That's always happening. So again, here's what that's doing. It's rewiring our brains and our neural patterns because sexuality produces dopamine. That's the chemical in our brain that produces a rush. But like all addictions, there's a law of diminishing returns. So the same images don't produce the same dopamine levels. So the longer you partake, the more you have to seek out more and more harder and harder forms of pornography. 
Like one person said, they said, when it begins, what it teaches you is that a real body rather than a chemically enhanced body isn't enough. And then the farther you go, then one body isn't enough. And eventually you're in your marriage and your spouse's body isn't enough. In fact, many porn users report no longer being able to become sexually aroused by their spouses. In a recent study, again, New York Times, of 16 to 18 year olds, nearly every person, think about how tragic this is, nearly every person reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. Young women in this study reported being pressured to play out scripts male partners had learned by watching pornography. They were badgered into, I got, this is emotional for me, I've got daughters. They were badgered into uncomfortable acts, faking sexual responses, consenting to unpleasant or painful acts. And all research shows a correlation between sex trafficking, violence towards women, rape culture, and pornography. Those things always go together. Now listen, can we just all acknowledge something real quick? There ain't a girl on this planet that dreamed of doing that when she was 10 years old. There's not one. And so listen, whenever you engage, whenever you partake in pornography, what you're doing by clicking on that video is you are participating in that industry and how it ravages and destroys women. So here's what it's like. Every time you use pornography, what you're doing is you're saying to some deadbeat dad, you're saying, dad, thank you. Thank you for neglecting and abandoning that girl when she was eight so she would have male intimacy issues. And you're saying to her uncle that sexually assaulted her when she was 12, hey uncle, thank you so much for raping her when she was 12 so that she would have brokenness in her life that would result in her ending up here. And hey drug dealer, thank you so much for keeping her high 24 hours a day around the clock so she would make these movies and I could use her in my life how I'd like to use her. Guys, what you need to understand is that, listen, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of a woman, the problem is that it shows too little. Listen, what it does is it trains you to look at a woman with hopes and dreams and a soul, and all you can see is a pair of breasts. That's what it does to you. So there's formation that's happening. We are being formed out of the image of Christ who loved and valued and lifted up women as image bearers of the living God. Now listen, what that does is that has trickled down into, again, the, how relationships are formed uh, in sexual formation. Again, especially in my generation and down. Let me read another article. This is from, again, Vanity Fair. I'm not talking like some puritanical, you know, hardcore right Christian magazine. This is Vanity Fair, okay? There was an article called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, okay, Vanity Fair. That Tinder, the hookup app, very common, has given rise to uh, something called a Tinder king. That's a guy who can get a woman into bed with a very strong text game or maybe using only emojis. A Tinderella, that's a girl you meet and sleep with before midnight. One guy in the article said, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of a guy in order to win them over, but then they just start wanting me to care and I just can't. One girl said, it's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a guy who treats her like a priority instead of an option. Another quote, they start out with something like, send me nudes, says Reese, or then they say something like, hey, I'm looking for something quick in the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Send location. It's straight efficiency. Another quote from a girl in the article, one guy hooked up, uh, there's a guy, one, one guy said, I hooked up with three girls off of Tinder in the course of four nights and spent a total of $80, he was bragging. And then one girl said, I, uh, I slept with a guy and he ignored me as I got out of bed to get dressed. I looked over his shoulder and saw that he was already back on Tinder. So that's like creating a culture. 
Now, that's dipping down into how marriages are beginning to be entered into and formed. So let me talk about a really sensitive issue, the issue of cohabitation before marriage. Now again, let me just acknowledge something. As you are going to see, Jesus sets a standard so high, there ain't nobody anywhere over the age of 13 that ain't a sexual sinner. We, there, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, okay? But when it comes to cohabitation, one in five cohabiting, now you just need to think about this, only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Cohabitation in every studies is shown to significantly increase the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who don't or won't. And every study indicates that sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for the likelihood of infidelity during marriage. Let me summarize all this. There's a good theologian and pastor that I respect very highly that says this. What's happening is there's a generation that's being trained to participate in what he calls sexual fraud. That's promising with your body that which you will not pay with your life. You are learning to treat people as objects instead of people. So can I just, can I just boil this down for you? The real formula is not desire plus consent equals freedom. Demonstrably, the real formula is desire plus consent equals emptiness and brokenness. That's what that is, okay? Now, let me just, I, I said some of you guys are stats people, some of you are story people. Let me give a story really quick about what's happening to you right now as you're engaging in this, okay? Uh, there's an old Eskimo legend about how Eskimos would kill a wolf. It's a fascinating little legend. What they would do is they would take a razor sharp blade, kill a squirrel or a rabbit, dip the blade in blood, and then set it out overnight to freeze, forming like a blood popsicle. Then they would put the base of the blade in the ground with the, the frozen blade stick, sticking up and leave it out overnight until an unsuspecting wolf would come and he would smell the blood and he would begin licking the blood popsicle. Now he would lick and lick and lick on the ice until his tongue eventually became numb. And as his tongue became numb, he would obviously start licking until he had licked all of the blood off of the blood popsicle until eventually that wolf with a numb tongue is licking ferociously an, expo an exposed razor sharp blade. Because his tongue is numb, he can't feel what's happening, and that blade is serrating his tongue over and over and over. But again, because of his numbness, he just licks and licks and licks until eventually he is the one that's bleeding. The blood infiltrates his system. It kicks in his instincts. He goes into overdrive, and sort of a hysteria happens, gets really excited until that wolf shreds its tongue on the razor-sharp blade, and then that wolf eventually bleeds to death. Now, isn't that just a wonderful image for you on a Sunday morning? Isn't that just great? Now, listen, that is a great example, an image of what happens to you when you engage willingly and throw yourself into lust and sexual immorality. What it does is it numbs you. And in your excitement, you keep participating while it shreds your soul to pieces. Now, here's a big question, right? The question is, so how do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we get formed into his image and pursue him in an uncommon purity and faithfulness in this area, okay? Now, what I wanna do is get super practical, okay? Now, let me start here. Can I point something out to you? Did you notice that in verse 13, Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. What Paul's doing is he's showing that those are mutually exclusive desires. Either you will desire sexual immorality and give yourself to that, or you will give yourself to a desire for the Lord. They cannot coexist, and one desire always kills the other desire. 
This is why the early church father, St. Augustine, who himself was saved out of a past of sexual addiction and brokenness, said this. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Guys, let me just speak to you from my heart. Here's what I want in my life as a Christ follower. I want an intimacy with the spirit that is so precious to me that I think I don't wanna risk doing anything that would rob me of that. Listen, that's what I want in my life. So let me get real practical. I don't start fighting this desire for sexual immorality at 7 p.m., like when your body wakes up. I start fighting it at 6 a.m. when I open my Bible and pursue intimacy with Jesus. Okay, that's where it begins. Now, number two, can we just point this out? Everywhere in the Bible, what we're commanded to do is to flee sexual immorality. We're not called to fight it, manage it, resist it, or wrestle it. This is interesting to me. The Bible, uh, there's another place in the New Testament that says, stand firm against the devil and take your stand against his fiery darts. So the Bible says, stand firm and fight against the devil. It says, flee from the hot girl. Uh, That's really interesting to me, okay? Now, can I just point this out to you? That's what you're called to do. So we just run from this. Just run, get out of there, man. Now, what you need to do is you gotta have rules in your life, men and women to protect you from being in a position to go down this path. Man, for me, I got, listen, I got all kinds of rules that people think are weird in my life. Um, I don't have meetings alone with women that are unsupervised. And when I travel, and I travel a lot, I don't stay in hotel rooms alone, and I don't travel alone. Jana and my assistant have my passwords to everything, including every social media account I have. Uh, Guys, I am driving the Lake Point Church IT department crazy right now because my accountability software on my computer, it like, it jacks with all the stuff that we have going on here and they keep going, man, if you just take it off, I'm like, I'm not gonna do it. You figure it, you figure it out, bro, because I'm trying to do this and flee from any possibility of sexual immorality. I got people in my life who see where every single dollar that I spend both on my personal card and my professional card goes, they see all that. Now, some of you guys look at all those rules and you might call me obsessive. I call me happily married. That's what I call me. I call me happily married, okay? And those things, fleeing from those things are worth it, all right? Now, let me do one more. <laughs> let, me get, let me get a little personal real quick here. Now, Pentecostal bedroom. Let me explain this. <laughs> let me explain this, all right? If you look in chapter seven, what Paul says is he says, do not deprive each other to married couples except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, all right? So what you need to understand is this, okay? All throughout the Bible, (laughs) let me just roll with me here. All throughout the Bible, the image of a well refers to a woman's sexuality for obvious anatomical reasons. And all throughout the Bible, a spring or a fountain refers to a man's sexuality for obvious anatomical reasons, okay? Now, let me read to you, this is from Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own well running water from your own cistern. Should your springs overflow in the streets, may your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Some of you guys are like, amen, amen. You're writing that down, all right? Now here's what that means. This means if you're married, the only legitimate source of romance is your spouse. That's it, that's it. Now, let me speak to wives and then husbands. Okay, wives, now here's what I know. I know that there are some medical and emotional situations that are just unique and, and that might be outlier situations, I understand that. 
But listen, wives, what you gotta understand, the Bible says that you are the only clean drinking water in town. Everything else, somebody said, whoo, over here, all right? You're it. It's like every other source of water's got typhoid in it. And listen, sometimes your husband gets thirsty. Sometimes he gets thirsty, and when you say, hey, babe, he says, hey, babe, can I have a sip of that water? And you're like, nah, man, I ain't really giving out that water right now. You're like, man, it's not your birthday, it's not your anniversary, ain't nothing like that, you know, I'm real sorry, that kind of thing. Listen, sometimes he gets thirsty, and you are it. You are the only thing that God has given him to be able to, I'm just gonna leave it right there. All right, now, husbands, husbands, let me, let me talk to you real quick, husbands. That was not the time to amen or nudge your wife or anything like that. Husbands, if you quote these verses to your wife, you're the worst. You're the worst. Because listen, she might be withholding water, but listen, she's probably starving. And here's what I mean. There was a time when you met her, when you pursued her and you had her heart and she wanted to give herself to you in intimacy. Listen, there was a time when you knocked on the door, she opened it, you had a, you had a shirt with a button on. No team logo, no barbecue stain. Like you looked okay, right? And you would open the door for her at restaurants. Guys, you watched all kinds of terrible, you watched The Notebook with her. There was a time when you watched, and at the end of the movie, you were like, man, baby, if you ever lose your mind, I'll be there for you, boo. You know, whatever you say, you did that. Guys, what you gotta understand is that physical intimacy, it follows emotional intimacy. And some of your wives feel like you haven't had an emotion in 15 years that you shared with her. You gotta understand that. So listen, let me summarize all this. What you need is you need a Pentecostal bedroom. Lots of tongues and the laying on of hands. Come on, somebody. That's what that means. Come on, somebody. That's what that means. That's right, all right? That's what you need. Now, let me land the plane. You are, some of you guys are writing that down. You're using that at work on Monday, all right? Now listen, let's start here. You're never going anywhere unless you learn to embrace grace. You've got to learn to embrace grace. And here's what I know is that while some of the people in the room were laughing. There were some of you who are sinking down into your ch chair in shame and fear. Because what you're thinking right now is, man, everything he listed, I did that. And I'm doing that. And what you're thinking right now is, man, I, don't, I really don't feel free. What I feel like is I feel like a slave. Man, I've done so much, I, I don't know if God could ever accept me. Man, can I point something out to you that I love about Jesus? I love this so I love this so much about Jesus. Do you know what you never see Jesus do in the entire Bible? You never see him scolding, rejecting, casting out, or shaming a sexual sinner. Not one single time. Listen, think about this. Oh, you're gonna have some applause moments. You're gonna have it. Listen, whenever the woman at the well who had had five husbands and then she was cohabiting with somebody that wasn't her husband, and Jesus comes to her and he befriends her, he's the only one who will be her friend. He says, hey, listen, man. You've gone to that well five times and you're still dying of thirst. Can I give you some living water? And she takes it and it actually worked and she went on her way rejoicing because she met Jesus. Listen, prostitutes all throughout Jesus' ministry, prostitutes, people of, of sexual brokenness, they flocked to Jesus. And Jesus in front of religious Pharisees said, she's getting into heaven before you and he took their side and lifted their heads. In the beginning of Acts, the, think about this, the first person that the Holy Spirit pursues to save in the book of Acts is the Ethiopian eunuch. Somebody who had had a surgery that we could put in the category of sexual reassignment surgery or sexual mutilation. 
and the Spirit pursues that man to say, I love you, I am for you, I will chase you down because you matter to me. And you can be redeemed and used by the living God. You, you don't have to die a slave. And listen, you may say, Josh, I just feel like I'm a slave to my sexual desires. Listen, you may have been born a slave to your sexual desires, but you can be born again by the power of the living Christ. My favorite story in the entire Bible is the story of uh, when there was a woman caught in adultery and she was drug out into the middle of uh, a group of Pharisees that were getting ready to stone her to death. And uh, they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? And you remember Jesus, he looks at him and he says, well, this is easy. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then Jesus, you remember the story? He kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. And then the Bible says, it doesn't record what Jesus wrote in the sand, but it just says that one by one, all the Pharisees left, the older first and then the younger. And what most Bible scholars think is that Jesus was writing all of their sins that deserve death. He was writing all of them in the sand. And then he asked this woman this question. He asked the question that I wanna ask you today if you come from a background of sexual brokenness. He said, woman, where are those who condemn you? And watch this, here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, everyone who would condemn you, wait, 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 I messed it up, listen. You realize that when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, you realize that Jesus actually was without sin and he could have totally justly picked up a stone and gone to town on that woman. Now watch this, here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, watch this, the only one woman who can condemn you won't. And all those who would condemn you, they can't. And that's what Jesus says to you. Now, if you are in the middle of sexual brokenness, while I was on vacation, I came across this, uh, it's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. And it's where these artists, they believe that uh, beauty can come from brokenness. And what they do is they take broken vessels and they put them back together and they infuse the places of brokenness with precious metals like gold so that they, the vessels are actually more valuable for having once been broken. And listen, what you gotta understand is, I need you to know this, you are not at any of our campuses sitting in a room with people who come from backgrounds of sexual perfection, amen, church. That ain't what you're coming from. You are sitting around a bunch of kintsugi jars, broken people who have been put back together by the grace of Jesus and all of our places with brokenness have, in, have been infused by the preciousness of his grace. And he invites you to that. Can I, that's right. He invites you to that. Now can I pray? Can I pray that God would begin to do that renewing work in your life? Father, thank you so much that your word says that you came to liberate the captive that you came to remove our shame, bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned he stood, hallelujah, what a savior. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you took the penalty for our sins at the cross and that you can make us new, fresh, clean again. So Father, I pray for the transforming power of your spirit to do that. I pray that people would be saved today, that they would trust you today and that they'd be forgiven of what they've done and set on a new path of freedom and wholeness. Father, we love you. I pray that we would always be a church who we don't point a finger, but we lift a hand. 
And we're here to walk alongside of in love and acceptance people who are just stumbling their, their way towards Jesus. So infuse us with that grace. We love you. We pray those things in your name. Amen and amen. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church slash digital.